Well, tonight we come to the last in our brief series of one chapter books within Scripture. We began with Obadiah. We end here with Jude. Last week we covered the shortest book in 3 John, and tonight we come to Jude, which is the longest. It beats out Obadiah by about 20 words or so. Um, Due to its length and due to our limited time, as I was sharing with Hank, I want to forewarn you that the anticipation and maybe expectations some of you entered this room with tonight regarding a few of the verses, particularly verses 5 to 15, and the answers that you were longing for will probably not be met. And I'll just be up front and tell you they won't be met tonight, okay? Um, for I, I have studied that middle section as much as I've studied the first and the last, but um, I believe it... Anything that I would offer in this time would be a a feeble attempt because there have been multiple chapters in multiple books and multiple classes and multiple sermons on those brief, uh, those illustrations that are present there, and I would do more harm than good to attempt to do all of that tonight. And I say that because I believe it would take away from the main point that Jude is trying to get across that's important for us. If we focus on some of those details, they would draw us away from the tone of the letter that's very important, from the occasion of the letter that's very important, and and overall the the purpose that is, is so important for us as it has been for the church Uh, And so what I want to encourage you to do is be Berean-like this week. I've said that before. I'll do it again tonight. Be Berean-like and go home and determine whether or not what I've said is true or not, but also go and delve into those questions that you have. Uh, I'm be more than happy to answer those for you this week if you have any, and so I'm not shying away from that. I'm just saying that um, we're not going to do it here tonight, okay? And uh, I'm ready for that, for uh, us to do that together this coming week. So if you have any questions, feel free to let me know. Now, with that said, I want you to look in the back of your bulletin for the outline that I mentioned to the children a minute ago. There are five points for our letter or for our outline. There's going to be an expression of brotherly love, an explanation of bleak circumstances, an extrapolation of bitter judgment, an expectation of better things and an exclamation of befitting worship. As is always the case, let us go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we now come to proclaim and listen to and study the truth that you have spoken once for all by your Son. We believe that what is contained in here, what is contained and what we have is truth, It is absolute truth, it's objective truth, it's authoritative and eternal and infallible and inerrant. And it is, of course, more important than anything we have to say. Would you in these moments grant us all things that pertains to life and godliness? Uh, may, May what we hear, may what is preached, and may what we diligently listen to be profitable for us. May it equip us for every good work. Challenge us, strengthen us, encourage us in these moments. 
Use me as you see fit for the sake of Christ and his church. And it's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. So let's begin first with our first point of the expression of brotherly love in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, the writer who begins with this customary salutation that we find in New Testament letters, identifies himself as Jude, that is short for Judas, and Judas was the brother of Jesus. And right away, through this introduction, he shares with us his overall disposition and attitude that he has towards this anonymous church to which he writes. Uh, Rather than put himself forward and promote himself uh, as, you know, and use his familial connection with Jesus... He says, rather than I'm a brother of Jesus, he says, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ, and I'm a brother of James. And so from the very beginning, he communicates that what is to follow is not about him. He is not looking for any attention in and of himself. As a matter of fact, he communicates that his spiritual status and And that eternal relationship that he has with the Lord as a bondservant is, it transcends any earthly relationship he might have. It takes precedent over his physical relationship with the Lord. And in doing so, he communicates to those he's writing to that he's not better than them. He's not elevating himself above them. He's identifying with them. In humility, he admits that his close proximity with Jesus as a physical brother did not in any way provide any benefit to which they did not have access. He's like them. He's one of them. He was in need of salvation, just as they were in need of salvation. Jesus was his Savior, just as he was theirs. And to to not only speak of that salvation that they shared, but to speak of the significance and amplify the significance of that salvation that they shared, he takes the opportunity, again, in customary fashion, to identify themselves or to identify his readers in a particular way. And he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He identifies them as he identified himself in a spiritual way, in spiritual terms. He identifies them as those who had been called. They had been chosen by God prior to the foundation of the world. He had chosen them because he loved them. He, he purposed to set them apart because he loved them, and he set that love upon them. And he loved them so much that they had been cleansed, purchased, reconciled, and united to him through the work of Christ. And not only, not only were they being kept for Christ, but the word there could be, it could say that he, uh, they were being kept by Christ. I think both are true, right? They're being kept for Christ. They're being kept by Christ. 
No one was ever going to snatch them out of his hand because the Father had given them to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus was going to keep them. He was theirs. They were his. And so what we have in this very brief statement is a very profound and deeply theological truth regarding their salvation. Using really those three words, he's saying that their salvation was past, present, and future. Their salvation was therefore eternal, and that there was nothing that could or would separate them from the love of Christ, so that salvation would always be theirs. And not because of anything they did, but because of what Christ had done for them. Their salvation was in His hands and not their own. And because their, their status as those who had been called, loved, and kept, um, because they had that status and He shared that status with them, He says He wished nothing but mercy, peace, and love for them. And He wanted that multiplied. Right? We, we get that same feeling we had last week with John. Right? He, he cares about them and wants them to flourish physically because of his love and relationship he has with them spiritually. And so he wants this all-encompassing success and goodwill that started spiritually. And he wants that multiplied. He wants that mercy, peace, and love to be ongoing and a daily reality and to, to keep on keeping on. And, and they, they, he wanted them to experience it abundantly and for it to overflow. And as they interacted with one another, that it would overflow on each other. And he wanted that for them because of the circumstances they were in. Right, he wanted that for them, that he wanted them to experience that because of the bleak circumstances in which they found themselves. Look at verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's original desire was to write to them and, to, uh, and build up upon that which he had begun in the salutation. Right? He wanted to talk about their common salvation that was theirs. His original goal was to elaborate more on that which had, that was already significantly touched upon, but there was much more to it. He wanted to be diligent and plumb the depths of that salvation. What all did it mean? It meant so much more even than what I have said tonight. There was so much to them being called, kept, or called loved, and kept, and he wanted to spend the time to keep digging and digging and digging and, and find out what all that meant. But, but he says he had to change course. He felt it necessary to make an appeal to them to contend for the gospel itself. He says, i got to take a couple of steps back. I wanted to dig deep and, and, and expound upon these things, but we need to back up. And he, he was compelled to urge them to contend for the foundational truths of the gospel. He had become aware of a situation that was bleak enough to necessitate a call for them to enter into an agonizing struggle. This was not going to be easy. 
He believed they were in, in the midst really of a, a spiritual life and death situation. And they needed to fight for the by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone gospel. Because it was that gospel upon which the church had been built, right? And was continuing to be built. It was the foundation. It was the, the apostolic teaching, right, that had, had, upon which the church had begun. It was not a trivial matter. This was not a, a preferential matter. It wasn't a semantic matter. It wasn't a circumstantial matter. To use the words from our book of church order, it was a matter of being out of accord with, hostile toward, and striking at the vitals of the gospel. And he wanted to deal with it. And so he explains what these bleak circumstances are in verses 4, 8, 10, 12 to 13, and 16. And I am going to read them again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our, of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with, with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of, foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They are grumber, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage you read it all without the other verses breaking it up and you understand why bleak is an understatement certain people had snuck in deceptively they didn't come in the front door they slid in the side unnoticed professing believers some were even leaders and at the beginning, they said all the right things. They played the part. They were doing all the right things. Their outward behavior reflected what they professed. But over time, who they really were, what they were really doing, what they really believed, how they really lived when no one was watching became more and more evident. The bottom line was he calls them ungodly. And they were perverting grace. They were turning it on its head. They were the kind of people who, if you ask them, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Would have said, absolutely, that's what our freedom's about. And they were the type of people who were believing a completely different gospel. And they were using the grace and the freedom that they had heard of and had been taught to satisfy their own fleshly desires. That's what Paul was warning the Galatians about. They were actually doing. They were acting like animals. They were lacking self-control and they were instinctively striving to satisfy their natural inclinations 
particularly sexual ones, both natural and unnatural. They were the type of people that as long as it felt good, they did what they wanted, when they wanted, where they wanted, with whom they wanted. And they didn't care what others might say. They, denied, they actually denied the lordship of Christ and they defied any authority that attempted to exercise that authority over them or who had been placed over them. They lived as if they were masters of their own destinies, control of themselves. They presented themselves as having something beneficial for other people. But they were not only dead in their own sins, but any wisdom, um, any works or counsel that they might provide was worthless. It was lifeless as well. There was nothing in them of any real substance. They talked and acted like they were super spiritual. You know, they had all the answers. They knew what was best. But all that did was put them in a position where they, they acted as though, you know, they were, they were never happy with anybody else. And they never, uh, never thought that anybody else knew what they were talking about and was always doing something wrong. And they acted like they had the best interests of others at heart, but really they, all they would ever do is manipulate them and use them for their own end and their own advantage. And they were wreaking havoc because they were involved in the worship and the life of the church, even to the point of coming to the Lord's table, the love feasts, right? Those, those potlucks suppers that included the Lord's Supper. They're participating as if nothing was going on, and, and they were turning every single bit of it into a farce. And to make matters worse, as they were lurking around and doing their thing, they were preying on the innocent and the unaware, and their false beliefs and their contradictory lifestyles were causing others to begin to doubt. They begin to have questions, and, and they were losing, to use the language from Hebrews, they were losing their moorings, and they were drifting, and in some cases, making a shipwreck of their faith. And that brings us to those other verses I mentioned when we began in the middle section, verses 5 to 7, 11, 14, and 15, and these all serve as that extrapolation of bitter judgment. As I mentioned when we began, there are questions that rise, right, as we go through these verses, and we have no problems with um, the exodus and those dying in the wilderness prior to entering the promised land in verse 5. We, we understand Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. We understand Cain and Balaam, and, and now for many of us, now that you know, Hans read our Old Testament passage, we understand Korah uh, in verse 11. Those are all those Old Testament references that we're familiar with and have read. But we do have questions like, what angels are in chains from verse 6? What was the dispute over, the Mo uh, over uh, Moses' body in verse 9? What is the book of Enoch that, from which he quotes in verse 14? And are those 10,000s, are those angels or people in verse 15? Again, what's important tonight 
is to realize that the original reader, he says, remember. So the original readers would have understood all of those things, even though we may not. And he wrote them for a particular purpose. He's reminding them of these things. They are things that they are familiar with. And so when he attaches, right, he uses them of illustrations, and then he attaches phrases like this. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe, in verse 5. Kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, in verse 6. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, in verse 7. Woe to them in verse 11, and then, of course, verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. His purpose is to remind them of the judgment that is to come on the ungodly. There is a bitter judgment awaiting those certain others that he's just described. There's a bitter judgment for them as well as anyone who follows them down that path that they're on. Right? So he's using all of those illustrations that they would remember to simply say judgment is the same in the past, it is true in the present, and it will be true in the, in the future as well. The ungodly will be judged. Their rejection of Christ, their chasing after and their satisfying of their own needs and wonders, uh, desires and flesh, their blasphemous way of life was not going to end well. The pleasure they were pursuing was temporary. But in these examples, he's saying that the consequences are eternal. Their natural and unnatural inclinations and impulses were sinful. And to strive after that satisfaction, was, their satisfaction would lead to destruction. Right? It, it amplifies it. This, this warning amplifies that call to contend. Contend for the faith. But fortunately, he doesn't end there. He, does, he doesn't leave it there. He has something else for them to remember, and he has something that he wants them to know. He expects something better for them. And so in verse 17, he says, but you must remember, right? He's, you, can you can feel the, the change, right? Because you felt it, right, as we read that out loud. Just lower and lower the heaviness of that description, and, and we're down here, and, and he comes along and says, but you must remember, right? Lift your heads. Beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember them. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He wants them to remember that what they are experiencing, what they're in the midst of, was really predicted, really, really ordained. He said it, he said it back in verse 4, you know, these, these folks have snuck in deceptively. But it's not like, they may have been unnoticed, but it's not like it was unexpected. 
It's all part of the outworking of God's overall providential plan. And he says, and and Jude writes, the apostles even predicted things like this were going to happen. And we know that Paul does that in Acts chapter 20, and he does so in 2 Timothy chapter um, 2 or 3, somewhere in there. And then, of course, uh, Peter does as well in in 2 Peter chapter 3. And and many believe that really Jude is quoting from 2 Peter chapter 3. So what was happening, it, it shouldn't surprise them. Don't be surprised, and don't be hopelessly discouraged. And then to help that potential discouragement that they're feeling, he goes on in verse 20, he says, but you, but you, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He says these bleak circumstances don't have to overcome you. You don't have to be overcome by them. You don't have to buy into their heretical and destructive teaching and you don't have to follow their their destructive patterns of life and you don't have to follow the ungodly in your midst. He says, work together. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Stay true to the apostles' teaching. Stand firm and contend for the gospel that is yours and that you share in common And having been joined, having been unified by the Spirit, pray for one another, intercede for one another, make supplications on behalf of one another, and trust in the Spirit to intercede on your behalf. And trust that in the Spirit that you share, who who has sealed you and indwells you, that as you pray for one another, that the Spirit will continue to work to build you up and solidify that union that you have with one another. Don't drift. Stay on course. Remain obedient. Walk, Walk in truth. Walk in love. Keep the Lord's commandments. Don't give up in doing good. Remain faithful. In Paul's words, remain steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is because what Christ has initiated, he will consummate. Right? The salvation that has begun, he will bring to a conclusion. The, re- the reward will be great. And then he says something that I think really supports the fact that his tone is really overall pastoral. Um, Unfortunately, there are many that believe that Jude's call, and maybe not, they don't think that Jude's tone is this way, but their tone becomes this way as they walk through this passage and and encourage others more than encourage to contend for their faith. The, The call that Jude's making is not to be obnoxiously stern. The call is not to be offensive. He's not telling us to go be abrasive for the faith. 
He's really pastoral here. Yes, contending for the faith is matter of fact. It's firm, but it comes from a pastor's heart of love, care, and concern for the body of Christ. And we see that in verse 22. He says, and have mercy on all who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There were those, again, who were being affected, right? These bleak circumstances were weighing upon them, and they began to doubt. They were listening. They were listening to this teaching. They were watching their lives, and they began to doubt the gospel. Some of them, more than likely, were even doubting their own faith. What is it I believe? Should I believe this? Should I believe that? And Jude says, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them. Come alongside them. Take them by the hand. Put your arm around them. And then there were others who weren't just doubting, but they had, been, they had taken the next step. Right? They had begun experimenting, dabbling in what the others were doing, experimenting with that sensual behavior. Parents, we call it, you know, you're playing with fire. They were keeping bad company and it was corrupting their good morals and and Jude says, snatch them. Right? Grab them. Don't, don't Don't just come alongside and grab their hand. Don't just gently put your arm around them, but but get two arms on them, right? Get two arms on them and and firmly, firmly get them away. And then he says there are even more. They weren't just doubting, they weren't just dabbling, but they were all in. Jumped in with both feet. Ungodly lifestyles. They weren't straddling the fence. None of that experimentation. Right? They were all in when it came to the ungodly patterns and ungodly lifestyles of unconfessed sin. And the verbal picture he paints is of underwear, soiled underwear that is meant to speak of the stain and odor that is the excrement of sin. And he says, be careful, be cautious, but firmly, forcibly reach out to them as well, making sure that you don't get pulled in to what they're doing. A little stronger language than what Paul gave the Galatians in chapter 5, but it's the same thing. Well, Jude does take a little longer than John to make his point, right? But as he's come out of this, he, he ends and, and breaks in to worship, right? Because he's gone from talking about their salvation, their common salvation and how they're, 
how they're called and loved and kept, and, and then he's taking them, taking them down into this valley, into these circumstances and the people that are around them, but he's coming back out, and he said, you know, but I expect different things from you, beloved, and then he breaks out into worship, not because of them, but because of the Lord. The Lord who, is, is lo- who, who he is looking to for deliverance, He says, now to him, this is that exclamation of befitting worship, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Not a benediction. It's not a blessing over the people. This is doxological. This is, this is who God is. Look to Him. He says, he, he did say remain obedient. Right? He did say remain obedient, but He knows that it's only the Lord that's going to keep them from stumbling. He knows it's up to the Lord. Their only hope to ever stand before a holy God without blame without condemnation, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. It was Jesus who willingly, he's writing, it was Jesus who took your sin uh, sin and your shame and your guilt. It was him alone that did that for you. He, he uh, He took on everything that, that had you bound He laid it upon himself, and he he gave himself as a sacrifice on your behalf, and and not only paid the price, Jesus not only paid the price for your redemption, but he paid the price for your, and, and secured your forgiveness. You know, you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, and it's Christ alone, he says, that can, he, he, to those readers that, that again, that, to lift their head, he said, it is the Lord alone that can present you holy and blameless and pure and without spot or blemish before the Father. Him alone. He can present you without sin because of his active work. Right? He, he says, I... I want you to know that you are not only sinless, but you are holy because his righteousness has been credited to you as well. He alone is the majestic one. God alone is the majestic one who reigns and exercises all authority. Right? Christ is the one who exercises all authority over that which was created by him and for him and to him. So he is the only one to which they should submit He is the only one worthy of honor. He's the only one worthy of glory. He's the only one worthy of worship. And they were called, loved, and kept because he was the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end, who was before all time and is now and will be forever. And so we we walk through that letter and we go, where do we start? 
Right? Where do we start for us tonight? What, what do we take away? We, there, there's not enough time. There's not enough paper to write down what we can take away. I'm going to help us begin that process that I hope will continue throughout the week and even in our small groups. What do, we, what do we take away? Four things I want us to think about. First, consider resting in being called, loved, and kept. We must consider resting in that truth of being called, loved, and kept. What was true for Jude and true for his readers is true for us. We too have been called. We've been called prior to the foundation of the world. We too have been, are, and will be loved. We too are being kept. Our salvation is sure, not based upon anything we have done. It's not even based upon our devotion. Everything has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And our salvation is eternal. It can never be lost or broken. And it is only rest in what He has done, resting in who we are as being called, loved, and kept, that will help us weather any and all circumstances. And just because I'm tired of talking about our circumstances, I'm not even going to list them right now. You know what they are. Jesus is enough. Secondly, he says, or we take away, excuse me, we need to contend for the gospel. We too need to contend for the gospel because what is true, what was true in the past is true today. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is is being attacked. It's ongoing. It continues to be attacked, and whether it be about his person or his work, or whether it be about his sufficiency, or our depravity, or whether it be about what he has done for us, or in us, whether it be about the root of our salvation, or the fruit of our salvation, whether it be about our freedom, or our obedience as bondservants of Christ, we are called to contend to painstakingly and agonizingly wrestle and preserve and proclaim Wrestle for, preserve, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We must be a church. Be a church in which the distinctions between law and gospel and faith and works and justification and sanctification are clearly distinguished and proclaimed. The gospel is a hill worth dying on. And we must remain alert, right? More than just Daniel needs to be checking the side doors. Thirdly, involves building up one another. Whether we're young or we're old, children, these all, these all apply to you, right? But whether we're young or old, single or married, parent or child, we all have a responsibility to work together, to build one another up, to encourage one another in the faith, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to trust in the Spirit as we pray, to trust in the Spirit to intercede for us. We all have a responsibility to to remain obedient, but help one another to to remain obedient and to, to... Fulfill the commandments of the Lord. We 
need to help one another and lift one another's head so that we might keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. We need to not give up in doing good. And then lastly, it involves reaching out to the doubting, weak, and lost. So we're, we're resting in our salvation, we're contending for the gospel, we're building up one another, and finally we're going to reach out to the doubting, weak, and lost. And as we begin our third year, and as we look toward particularization in about five weeks, it's my hope and prayer that we will foster an environment with a few characteristics. I pray that we foster an, an environment in which questions can be asked when doubts exist. I want to be in an environment where those who are struggling with those questions and doubts are not afraid to ask and to admit that they're doubting and and are in need of help. I want us to foster an, an environment where fears and failures can be admitted because forgiveness is offered and experienced. I want us to foster an environment in which we're willing to get our hands dirty, where we're willing to step into the relationships and the situations and the areas that are difficult and messy. It's my prayer that we would be in a, a created environment where the, the truth is spoken but it's spoken with love and we proclaim that no one is out of Christ's reach because there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. Because God's grace is greater than any and all of our sin. May that be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.